Hello, my name is Ildiko. And I'm Phil. And this is the My Open Source Experience podcast. Open source is an incredibly social art. Open source is innovation. Like open source is enabling. Open source is community. And open source is weird. Open source is incredibly important. Open source is hard. Open source is engaging. Open source is collaboration. Open source is like running the show. Open source is ubiquitous. Open source is, well, my life. <laughs> and open source is not free. Before we dive in, let me give you some important reminders. People on the podcast participate as individuals. They do not represent any company or organization. All the thoughts and opinions are theirs. People share their stories and experiences, the way how they went through them and how they remember them and reflect how those experiences affected their lives, influenced their decisions and their careers back then or ever since. Welcome to the My Open Source Experience podcast. On today's episode, Phil and I are talking to Stefano Mafuri, and we're covering open source licenses, something that we should all understand deeply. However, there are a lot of confusions floating around in the industry. So we will cover challenges, good and bad practices, and the evolution of open source licenses. Enjoy the show. Stefano. Can you please introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, what do you do right now um, in tech? <laughs> of course, of course. Hi, yeah, it's great to be here. I, I've been in uh, free software and open source for a long time. I, when I graduated from, from college, I started using a computer. I, I started architecture, so buildings and urban planning rather than uh, software engineering. I wasn't doing much programming at all. Um, or at all, actually. So uh, I just was in front of a computer long for, for many hours, and it was always complicated to acquire licenses for AutoCAD or Esri, Arkinfo. And, and you know, even after the complicated process of um, working with procurement at university and getting the packages, it was it was always painful to to make the programs that we just, they came in a box, <laughs> make them do what uh, we were supposed to be doing as researchers and, and newly graduated architects. So I thought that there had to be a better way. And before I graduated, I, was, I had a friend of mine who mentioned this Linux thing. And, um, and I, at the time I tried to use it, but I gave up because it was really uh, complicated for me, too complicated. And I still didn't, find uh, Windows any any more friendly or usable, but still I got st I was stuck with it. It was the professional thing that you were supposed to know how to use. Anyway, spending a lot of time with the software uh, was was complicated and um, I ended up by chance um, discovering the GNU manifesto and the GNU project. And that kind of a lot went, went off and like well, this looks more like the kind of the kind of science, the kind of teaching that I have received. You don't start from scratch all the time. You, uh, one of my early lectures in in architecture was a professor of technology who told us, "You, you young uh, students, uh, you are not going to be. You, you need to be 
filling up your your brain with what the others the elders have been doing like walk around the town walk around the city of florence try to see how other buildings have been built built on build on top of that like don't try to reinvent the wheel because it's really not worth it <laughs> um, so that was my first exposure to to free software and open source at the time i i found that very fascinating so i started advocating for it and started putting more knowledge and more efforts into running Linux at that point because I thought it was the right way to do it, the right way to do computing. And uh, and long story short, I ended up uh, running the open source initiative as the executive director a few decades after, after that. <laughs> do, you, do you feel that your background in like architecture when it comes to buildings and you and you mentioned urban architecture do you think that helped or shaped or influenced how you were thinking about software and the and the tech industry and ecosystem uh, absolutely I, I, I've been doing so much of the training in multidisciplinary environments like working with social scientists statisticians engineers like building engineers uh, civil engineers and 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 uh, and computer scientists to uh, to do to 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 progress you know to learn how to to do things it, it, uh, urban planning especially it's it's such a such a social social discipline so so tied to social this discipline and this multi multidisciplinary approach has followed me with any in all of my career like from from um, uh, the the initial years where I was advocating for open source and free software with the Free Software Foundation Europe in Italy, to uh, managing communities later on uh, with uh, companies and and nonprofit organizations like the OpenStack Foundation and and other groups like um, Funambul and uh, Rackspace and Twitter, like many many different companies that I've worked with, I've always carried that approach of um, trying to understand everyone talking and trying to get into the the into the heads of every stakeholder say that i'm smiling so much because we talked to uh christy nicola and, and he wanted to be an architect i also wanted <laughs> to be an architect and then i ended up in it and both christy and i kind of enjoy this community building and community architecture and governance and, and those kind of things so to me personally it's just so interesting to learn about everyone's career path and how you know these uh these different segments that have nothing to do with tech still influence us very, very strongly. Well, I mean, if you think about it, right, I mean, urban planning is the is is a function of community building, right? I mean, that's literally what you're doing at a physical level. Um, maybe talk a little bit about um, your joining and, and taking the role of executive director at the Open Source Initiative. And uh, how do you think things at the OSI have changed since you've started there? Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, well, the, the OSI is a 25 years old organization, but it's been through multiple iterations already. I joined a little over two years ago and um, as the first executive director. So things that have changed since I started is that we now have an executive director. <laughs> and we have a board that is now functioning more of a 
more as a board uh, instead of being the group of volunteers that were doing the work. Before, before I joined, the board uh, members were were active and they were they were being they were setting agendas and and they were running projects. Uh, right now, now it's it's different. The, uh, we have staff and uh, and staff sets priority with the board and uh, and and then we execute with uh, board supervision. Although the board the it's not fully only a supervisor board, but uh, it it's going into that direction. It's, they are taking that role. Um, and um, what else has changed? We formalized our like our programs. So we now have uh, formal formal activities and the responsibilities within our team. One of the programs is the historic one where we look at licenses, we we review licenses, we maintain the list of approved licenses. And then we have added to that program also a project called Clear, Clearly Defined, which is a, a metadata of um, a, a layer of improvement of information about licenses for individual packages inside the NPM or PyPy, Maven, the, these many of the packages inside those distributions don't don't mechanisms they don't have the right information or they're missing information about licenses so clearly defined helps compliance managers to to have a a, a full view of what they're actually shipping to customers the new program that we started is the program the uh, policy program, which was already active. We had um, Sam and Phipps taking care of uh, overseeing the development of new standards and somewhat paying attention to policies. But during the past year, year and a half, two years with uh, his uh, priorities, they've shifted. So he's looking more at the policy and, and some oversight over the development of standards. And we added uh, uh, Deb Bryant with uh, uh, more responsibility on the U U.S. front, uh, similar similar responsibility, watching uh, the development of new policies in the United States and and uh, come up with um, uh, positions and and uh, educating the policymakers. And the third program is advocacy and outreach. On this program front, we do organize conferences and, uh, and but. In, in this bucket, we're also looking at the what's happening with in, in the AI context, in the artificial intelligence machine learning, because this is something that I've been really um, concerned about. I've been before I joined the Open Source Initiative. Uh, I always I've always been a promoter of free software and open source. I've been um, I've been watching the organizations in the space and hoping that someone would pay attention and do more uh, about when when um, when the mobile phone, uh, the iPhone was launched and when uh, AWS was launched. Both of these, I, I saw those two new technologies and I, I thought that I had this impression that they were both affecting some very fundamental components of the open source definition and the free software definition. Distribution of software changed radically. The concept of execution of software also changed. Uh, you know, I was thinking of the, 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 the applications that you have, the modern applications where you snap a picture on the phone. Your picture is not 
simply stored on your phone. It's it's uploaded on on some system, and that system identifies I don't know red eyes or other imperfections, fixes that for you, and sends you back the picture. So, you know, in in this space, for me, that was a new way. I, I couldn't really understand exactly what were my rights. Uh, what's the source code that I need to that I need to ask for? Uh, you know, should I? You know, is there such a thing? Can I exercise any of my rights that I was supposed to be able to exercise? The right to study that system, that software, you know, that modified, copy, and 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 um, and and run it for any purpose. Like, can I do any of that? You know, I I and how do I exercise those rights? I didn't know, and I thought that there was something missing. Someone was the organizations of Free Software Foundation, the Open Source Initiative, were not paying attention. And, and and that's how I pitched it to I pitched, I made the pitch to the to the board when I was being hired. <laughs> there now there is AI coming, and if you if we miss also the this AI is changing the boundaries between data and software. Like at, at one point, that's just a very very visible thing. And if we miss this revolution too, like if we miss the this innovation, having an understanding of what users need to be uh, what rights they need to be demanding and how they can exercise them if we don't have that conversation we're going to be irrelevant within within a few years and um and that's how i got the job i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah we started looking at ai straight on uh, immediately that was our um took a little bit of convincing the rest of the board but the AI space is really fascinating for me. It's it's really introducing new new artifacts, and it sounds to me exactly the same. We are as a society at the same time at the same space, very similar to when software first emerged from the from as, as a new artifact of human creation. In the late seventies, for the first time, software started to be portable. You you started to be moving it from from one machine to another, same source code. You just recompile it and and run it on another machine. Wow, you know what are we gonna do with this thing? You know, with what kind of law do we need to apply? What kind of legal frameworks? And copyright started to emerge, right? And and the GNU um, community started to say, wait, wait a second. <laughs> you know, if we copyright everything and privatize and every PhD cycle, we have to start all over again because you know whoever finishes their PhD, they're gonna start the company. And that's what was happening. So they start a company, privatize their their research, and uh, boom, start start from scratch all the time. Or you need to ask permissions all the time. Can I use your results of your PhD? Can I? Can I? May I? And and that you know would have stopped the evolution of computer science if if that was going to be the case. If Richard Stallman, and we need to give credit to the man. If Richard was not so fixated and adamant about no, this is the wrong way to go, we, looking backwards, I don't think that software, and computer science and um, uh, would have evolved so quickly. It would probably be would probably be standing really way behind, and instead with these principles of, um, enabled of low friction, no friction, permissionless. Um, ecosystem that's how science has evolved and a new a new um, 
a whole ecosystem has, has been created. We are in a similar in a similar time because when, when I look at deep learning, machine learning, these neural networks, these advanced neural networks, they're creating new artifacts to the models, the weights, the, the hyperparameters, all these new things. We don't know exactly what kind of legal frameworks apply to them. Some people are saying they're, they're not even copyrightable. So if they're not copyrightable, then what do we, how, you know, do we protect them? Do we have to? Well, probably not, but hopefully not. But we need to have that conversation and we need to have it now. You, you said something that kind of makes me ponder. I mean, in my, in my perspective, um, you know, the introduction of the iPhone, um, the, the, the rise of cloud services like AWS, um, you know, those, those took off, you know, I think the iPhone was introduced in 07. Um, I was right at also when the GPL V3 was created, the Afero, I think came in 08 um, as licenses to attempt to address um, things like cloud services um, in this different model. And those licenses haven't really caught on, except in the interesting case of trying to create an arduous commercial unfriendly license that would then be um, push organizations into a commercial license, right? I mean, do you think that that was a success in what it was doing or um, do you think it's, maybe talk a little bit about why you think it did or didn't get the uptake that uh, that folks were expecting is that GPL evolved from two to three, and similarly, I mean, it, you're you're in the you're in the interesting place of again trying to build governance and structure around um, yeah. the AI models, the inbound tools, the the outbound tools. You know, there's a and, and of course the data. So maybe maybe tell us a bit about your perspectives there and 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 how, how you're trying to navigate that with AI. Yeah. It, it... <laughs> It's interesting. So I, I think that at the time, there, there was there was um, there, there has been way too much. There there have been too much um, uh, finger wagging and and not enough not enough listening. I I I think uh, because copyleft I think it's is a very important is a very important tool and uh, for preservation of those of the rights of the users. Mm -hmm. And I think that what, what's happened, what, what's been happening with what happened in the past that fortunately there, there was no one really redefining the concept of users as the new users were being added. As the internet exploded, as mobile phones started to become popular and going in everyone's pocket, the concept of user that Richard Stallman initially had was not the same, was not the same uh, it started to change, and I, I don't think that that, that there's been much of thinking and, and evolving into in to 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 clarify what the concept of copyleft copyleft became uh, needed to become. I I think also that there was a very strong antagonistic position between the Free Software Foundation and a lot of the corporations that were popularizing a lot of their code and uh and and that has not result has, has not aged well like yeah like you were saying the the copyleft the only answer to uh, copyleft the only uh, 
the copyleft answer to cloud and mobile has been the Affair GPL, which is which is a license that is extremely complicated. Google adamantly refused. The VC have VCs who have you know who are a part of this movement. You know, are part of this ecosystem. You can't deny that. For as much as so many people don't like them, but they are part of it. And they they have been reluctant to adopt it, or they never really understood it. Like I don't know, I I would have, I don't know what would have happened if the Free Software Foundation went on a tour to explain um, in in Silicon Valley to explain what the GPL does, what copyleft means, what kind of business models you can enable with uh, with GPL and 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 the copyleft concepts, what the affair GPL intention is. If they went on a tour, maybe on a listening tour, if not an explanation tour, maybe maybe things would have been different, um, and not the default would not be Apache, just because you know it's easy to understand, and you know IBM uses it, so no one's been ever fired for picking IBM anyway. <laughs> Do you have experience working with a company, like just looking at the other side, like a company having to understand either GPL or or any other license in the open source space and just uh, like both in terms of how to use software and, and contribute back uh, with the different licenses, yeah. as well as maybe if they are open sourcing a project, like how to choose a license for it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've been in, in. I've been doing those, have, having those conversations before. But I, I have worked at the company that was very popular during the before the before the iPhone came out. Uh, the company is called Funamble, and with Funamble, the the code was always available under uh, initially a GPL license, GPL v3, uh, GPL v2, and then when the GPL v3 came out and the Fedora GPL came out. Then the, the the CEO and we, we had this conversation. He immediately went for the affair because it fit perfectly his purpose. the 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 company was structured in a very clean with a very clean separation between community users and paying users. Community users were using the exact same code that the um, the enterprise uh, users were were using. Simply, the enterprise users were just telecoms. And no telecom will ever, I mean, at the time, they, they, were, they just wanted to have a, a company behind them, a support contract and, and strong SLAs and all of that fun stuff. So there, there was a very clear separation. The, there was no, the sales team was not going after the users on the forum. They were not interested. They just had a very precise target. And the Affair GPLv3 allowed for protection of all the, uh, the, all the copyright forced every contribution to come back. They, they had no issue with, uh, Flamble had no issues with free riders or any of that. Actually, they, uh, the, 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 let's call them free riders. They were, uh, they, were um, they were supporting the brand and make it the, proper, the project more popular. Uh, the, the software was also modular, so it allowed for integrations with other, the, the, the software was, synchronizing contacts and calendars and pictures and email across multiple devices. So if you had a Nokia and a Blackberry and an Ericsson phone, they, you could, you know, you could also, you could share the same 
um, the same contacts also on the desktop too. Uh, it was magic, right? Uh, with push notification too. <laughs> it was just fantastic. And, um, and the integrations also made it so that the, you know, it, it was super popular. How do you see the evolution of the uh, the license landscape lately? Like with yeah. the uh, the new business source license, I think functional source license came out functional recently. Functional source too. license, yeah. So I, I think this is part of the. Uh, I I think I mean I'm I'm I, I may be wrong, but I I think this is just the fact that we haven't spent enough time as communities as open source experts to teach others about the values of the open source, what it means to do that, to run that pip install, npm install, what have you. And, and what it means to have, um, and what it means to, what options you have once you choose a license, what business options, business model options you have when you choose a license. Because all those pieces are connected. If a lot of these companies when I when I see them changing their license and the reasons to for for their, their explanations for changing their license, to me is part of that lack of understanding of initially from the beginning, right? The the beginning you you know that your product is going to be served as a um, as a service. If you put all of your code into into GitHub or somewhere public with a license that allows for anyone to pick it up and run and run their services of course you will you will run into free riding uh, issues we as a community as communities open source communities have not provided enough answers to that enough enough knowledge um, if you think about the uh, the fact that there is only one license that covers the space the affero gplv3 um, that that's partially why you know I think it's a symptom of why um, there is there is not enough knowledge in this space, not enough shared understanding of this space and and solutions. Therefore, and and so we we could have done more. We could have done more of listening, and we could have done more more providing providing alternative solutions and information. I think there is still space to cover, to recover. Though there is still time to recover and uh, to to provide more of that. And I would love the OSI to do more into into this space because there is there, the part about education is important. Very few notice. Also, I mean, when I when you look at Sentry or that switched to they they switched to the functional software license, but also any other package out there. You will notice that if you look at their their software build of material, they import a lot of packages that they haven't written. So, and and Sentry is good in that front because Sentry pays back. Like at least they have a program of of um, distributing distributing money to open source developers out there, individuals. But not many other companies do the same, and 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 that also. Not not enough because if everything if everyone um, if everyone switches to to licenses that are you know it's good it's semi open source unless you know unless you like to wear khaki pants or unless you you know you, you don't drink coffee because we don't like coffee right 
you end up creating gated gated environments, not commons. And the gated environments require that in order to go from point A to A point B, you have to cross, you have to ask for permission. And that becomes immediately unfeasible, destroys everything that we built in very quickly. Do you think it's the uh, the responsibility of open source foundations to uh, to do this type of education, or do you think that it's a broader responsibility than that? No, I, I, well, okay. So for if for twenty, we have twenty years to recover, at least twenty years to recover. Right? The, too much time for too long. The emphasis has been on licenses, licenses only. If it's if it's licensed with if the package is licensed with an open source approved license, then it's an open source package. Yes, and there is more. You you can there is more because from the license we need to talk about business models. We need to talk about governance of projects. We need to talk about responsibilities that you have towards society, towards other developers, and all of that is interconnected. That piece of complexity, I think, has been lost. And many engineers who have just, they've been running without thinking about the responsibilities, without thinking about you know the quality of the product that they were releasing or being forced to release quickly by some other obscure force. I'm not blaming developers in, in general, but there, there is push to deliver quickly, get a new feature out without thinking too much. So everyone has been assembling without you know, assembling components and uh, without paying attention to the guy in Nebraska, right? And and his needs or their needs. I I think we need we need to seriously rethink. And I I'm I'm starting to get the sense that the CRA is forcing us, forcing our hand. The CRA, the Executive Order on Cybersecurity in the United States. All of all of these this pressure is 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 bringing that. You know, come to Jesus moment, right? We're we're, we're going to have to have that conversation, and the role of the foundation, I think, is is um, crucial because because the because of being a place where knowledge is embedded into their governance, in, into the people who work there, and then can spread out to the contributors. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting. Being inside of large organizations that are analyzing the open source that's coming in and the importance of something um, being defined by the open source initiative as being open source with the the various principles of open. Um, for a lot of organizations, it's the case that that's the difference between being able to do something as a developer or developer team and having to go engage sourcing right? Or whatever your procurement uh, organization is that has to um, yeah. go through the contractual, right? And that's, and, and, and it's very much a step function, right? You're either open source. And so you know what you're going to be able to do with that software and what obligations, right? I mean, certainly, you know, the, there's, you know, yeah. every open source program office has a tie to their internal legal counsel and their mm -hmm. IP legal counsel as to what, you know, can and can't be done and how you want to do that. But um, when it's not open source, regardless of the new license or a traditional commercial license, it does trip over to sourcing. And so that's always a very much a step function. Um, and I think it just gets, it gets even substantially more convoluted when we start having organizations using 
either the the Afero GPL or using um, the business source license or what have you, and then adding these added caveats in a blog post that say, well, the license says this, but if you're doing this, that, or the other thing, it's actually okay with us because those are the types of things just muddy the waters even worse, right? Because then yeah. you can't even, you, you don't know from one management, you know, all it takes is a new management um, yeah. to say, well, you know, that blog post, yeah, we didn't really mean that. So we actually really do want to do what the license says. And that just creates all this confusion, right? And so, and and it's confusing between, is this a sourcing thing? Do we need to just go commercial license and not have to deal with this ambiguity or is it an open source? I mean, how do you see those evolutions and and how it's affecting um, the the, the collaborative communities that actually, you know, are the basis Uh, of open source? It's it's bad, uh, right? It's bad. I I understand their needs. I understand their fear. I understand even at the generational level. Like sometimes I I speak to, I, I'm with these AI conversations. I'm engaging with a lot of groups that are not developers. They come from other from other spaces, from the open knowledge or open science, open data, or not open at all. They're the civil liberties union and and other groups and and. There, I, I've noticed a lot of the resistance against against the big the big tech companies. Like in when when we started, the, when the open source started in twenty years ago, and the big promoter was Google, and it was a good thing. Like Google at the time was a savior. They were the the bastion against Microsoft, against Oracle. They were they were helping. Uh, they understood open source. They were adopting it, and they, they were deploying it at scale. And we were all excited about it. And forward twenty years ago, there they they the initial ones they're millionaires, billionaires, and and generationally, we also know. I mean, we also have noticed that the 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 divide. The, the gap between the haves and the have-nots have expand, has expanded. There is less of this, you know, the middle class. And I, all of this, to me, resonates as one possible explanation of this reluctance, of, of this, this hate against, um, against whatever favors Google, whatever fav- favors Bezos and, and Amazon um, as a resistance, right? This may not be the case in for Sentry or for Elastic or any of these other companies who, but I I can see, I can see a trend in here. I, there is a trend of resistance against the big corporations because they've been exploiting the labor, the work of many of many people. So maybe I'm bundling two different things into one group, but the end result is the same. There is there is resistance against the the big the big uh, tech corporations. And um, and as a as my role is quite difficult in these cases because I have to because I I I understand the reasons for that hate I understand and I I even find it justifiable. But at the same time, I know that the solution is not to change the definite the open source definition to add new licenses with these obstacles because that will be, create the counter effect, like it would make the, the large corporation even more powerful because they can afford to have legal processes go through the legal process. They can afford to rewrite some of the code um, or, or even maintain a, 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 maintain a fork. Um, they, 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 can, they have 
um, I mean, I talk about this with uh, the data people quite a lot because you know they they there is a there is a whole group of creators who are saying, well, I'm not going to license my I'm not going to give you permission to use my pictures or my my art, my my writing anymore because I don't want I don't want to be exploited by Microsoft and. My reaction is well, if you if you insist on expanding the scope and the reach of copyright to cover data mining, what you're implicitly saying is you're giving your thirty years of history is only proprietary to the companies that already have accumulated that. So the Google, the Microsoft, the the Getty Images, the Adobe, and all the others, because they have you you we gave as a society we gave them the uh, all of our content and now we're stuck yeah it's a complex world you sit in a very interesting position <laughs> yeah well it, i i find it fascinating i'm having fun uh, navigating this these conversations yeah yeah and i too can appreciate the situation that the smaller companies are in with exploits is probably a reasonable word just the 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 ability for the large uh, tech companies to use those innovative services and turn them into again something that can be monetized on their platforms i really really struggle with the changing the license though because you're somewhat making a contract with the rest of the the world when you put something out and then to turn around and say yeah no we were just kidding uh, we want to mm. go with this different model that that I have a hard time with. Um, the bait and switch is not a good, is not good for the community and the overall collaborative ecosystem either. Yeah, there, there's got to be a better way, and then uh, and I would love to have the resources at the USI to to help these conversation, to to have this conversation in a safe space, because I I think it's time we have it. Yeah. Do you see the negative effects of of these these kind of behaviors already? I would expect no, no, not really. It, it's one of the fascinating things that I want to see. In fact, with um, uh, the the annual survey that we do with um, together with uh, Perforce, uh, this this year one of the questions was uh, differentiating between uh, open open search and Elastic, and differentiating MongoDB and MongoDB a compatible API service storage service. So we can start monitoring whether people are switching to compatible compatible systems. It, it, it's it, it's really complicated. The bait and switch is definitely a bad thing. Uh, the introduction of new licenses and the, the, the um, is is also confusing because, like you were saying, uh, Phil, it just confuses the lawyers and makes all more complicated than, than it should be. The, the advantage of the open source, if there is one, <laughs> the, the, the main advantage is, is that self-sovereignty of, of developers over their, their technological choices. And if you remove that, then we're back to the, the age where you, you, know, you, you need to call a salesperson in order to, uh, to, to, to do any business. Yep. And the moats get formed and yep. And the incumbents win. So, yeah. I mean, when it comes to these license changes, sometimes I, I, I get to wonder if it's 
if it's about not understanding open source or like not being able to get the most out of open source or or it really is just because they can use open source as kind of a marketing campaign and have an open source license and then spread the word show everybody what this what this tool and artifact is all about and then when enough people know then say that okay now we are switching to a different model because that's that's what our business is and the whole the whole charade just ends up being a very different weird marketing campaign i it's hard to tell it's probably all of the above it's uh you know wanting to exploit the popularity uh, the fast adoption rapid adoption you, you put your early code as a apache license on on github and and if it's good, people will start flocking to it, going to it, and downloading and using and integrating. Um, but some other times, and some 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 founders I speak with, they they went without thinking without thinking about the consequences. They they are pretty. They seem pretty naive to me. Like no, I I don't know. My friends used the Apache, or my previous startup where I worked there, they were using Apache. I use Apache. Like, okay, have you thought about the fact that? You know, it can be incorporated in someone else's product and you don't see anything back. <laughs> like if they're bigger than you, they they can maintain the fork and they don't rely on you. Oh, no, I haven't thought about that. I have had these conversations. And some other times it's just um, like, like some other times it's just a pattern. Like the, the right, the, Simon Phipps calls it the, the rights ratchet model. Uh, which is the sugar CRM model, model it, you know, gain adoption. And, and after, after a while, when you need to clean up the books for one reason or, or another, you, you, you squeeze and, and change the license, change the availability to, to others and start milking your, your users. There are so many different people that you meet who have so many different, wildly different perspectives on what open source is. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I recall having conversations with an individual who, you know, defined his open source success by how, how, how many users were using his product. And it's like, that's, you got a good product. That doesn't mean you're got a collaborative community or you're actually open source or, you know, what, what does that mean? Um, and it's very similar to what you just said, right? Yeah. You know, somebody learns from the last startup that the, uh, that was the license they used. And so, yeah. To the uh, the license space, as you as you talk to people, companies, organizations, do you have like a view on I don't know seeing the most common misunderstandings about how to build a business model and how to factor in the license, or or misconceptions, or or what people just kind of refuse to even try to understand. Yeah, I think that the most common one that I see is the the visceral and visceral reaction against the GPL or the free GPL. Like, oh, I cannot do it's non-commercial. Uh, that that's the biggest uh, the biggest pushback, and that kind of makes me angry. <laughs> oh, it's not commercial. What do you mean? You cannot incorporate it without giving back? No, it forces me to do. It's viral. It attaches to everything that I. Uh, see, you need that. We need more education. We need to do a little bit more. The the Free Software Foundation used to have this. They still do. They they have these 
uh, FAQ document, but it's becoming more and longer and longer and longer. At this point, they should probably be investing into um, into going in and talking to people like proper training because it, it it's a it is a complicated concept, and it bec- it's becoming more complex into with the technological evolution. But it's still a very fundamental comp- piece where you can do business with it. You can you you don't have to open up everything that you have attached to you to that to that code and it is something that um, empowers a lot of the as users a lot of the technology that we have right now if we if we had a, a more powerful way of, of changing what runs in our TVs what runs in our cars and fix them we would probably be in a much better place as as a society and in fact I welcome you know I, I'm watching with very much well a lot of interest what the software freedom conservancy has been doing uh suing Vizio and uh, and in order to get more access to the source code that runs uh in inside tvs do you have any success stories saying that you you work with you worked with a with an organization uh as they were trying to figure out the landscape and they actually got it right uh, not yet. Uh, no, yeah, I cannot disclose, but we do have, we try to, we try to help the, uh, corporations who end up, you know, having to, to deal with, uh, complicated matters. And we try, we try to help them. There, I mean, maybe there is a case where we have, we were not involved as an organization, but one recent case, one recent discussion was the, uh, a court that has uh, confirmed that the open source being open source really means something and, and uh, calling your product open source when it's not using an open source approved license is false advertising that that um, that case uh, and that pronunciation from a judge was a pretty good success story for me yeah agreed that was good to see. I mean, it's been it's been part of the fabric, I would say, of many many contracts since I was working at HP in the early two thousands, right? It's a common thing to say, you know, you can do something as open source as defined by the OSI, right? Um, it's a it's a the OSI is the organization that if not legally has the right, although it's it's more so than it used to be, with that recent court decision. Um, it, it's always been the de facto, um, at least in the organizations that I've been familiar with, um, that that is the organ, you know, the OSI is the organization that says what, what is open source and what isn't. I mean, that delineation has been really important, like I said, because it, it means, you know, can a developer use it or do we have to go through procurement? Um, and so it's, it's baked into that fabric of the software supply chain and how modern software is written. Can you tell us something about yourself that has nothing to do with tech and nothing to do with open source or licenses? I'm learning how to fix uh, outboard motors. Excellent. <laughs> and how is that going? <laughs> uh, it's good. It's good. Get your hands dirty and uh, learn a new skill. I, it's uh, it's like going back to the era where I when I was restoring a little motorcycle 
very tiny 50 cc that you could turn it on with a pedal oh. pedaling yeah very exciting cool. And with that, that's all, folks. That was our episode for today. We want to hear from you. Please leave your thoughts and feedback in the comments section of the platform where you're following the podcast. This season is full of very interesting topics. For instance, open source licenses, culture within communities as well as companies, mentorship programs, open source within companies, or in other words, why does HR have to know what free and open source software is? Stay tuned because the next episode is just around the corner. Um, you know, that, that was my first experience. Oh, I loved it. Uh, y'all had, had me telling stories that I haven't even thought about. And... Thank you so much for having me here. It was a pleasure. Like, I will have coffee with the two of you any day for the rest of my life. Like. <laughs>